0: You're listening to audio from 7 Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit 7 com. In his now famous commencement, uh, commencement speech at Kenyon College, the late David Foster Wallace began this way. He said, Greetings, parents, and congratulations to Kenyon's graduating class of 2005. And then he shared this story. He said, There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, What's water? Now the point of this fish story is merely that the most obvious and important realities are often some of the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. In other words, some of the very most important realities in our life and in our world are the ones that are hidden in plain sight. This morning as we come to Esther chapter 2, it seems that the most important reality is hardest to see. If you read through the book of Esther, you will see that God is seemingly nowhere to be found. It's not just in chapter 2, it's throughout the whole book, God's name is not mentioned once. Not a reference to God's activity at all. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible where there's no direct mention of God whatsoever. This has led many throughout church history to even question its place in the canon. In fact, there wasn't even one commentary written on the book of Esther for the first seven centuries of the Christian church. As the church started, they started writing commentaries and explanations about all the books of the Bible except for Esther. No other book in the Bible mentions Esther, where you have a lot of other scriptures being referenced by others. Esther is completely absent. She doesn't make it into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. There are zero. Allusions or references to any verse from Esther throughout the entire Bible. And on the surface, it seems like this book could just be taken out of the Bible and we wouldn't notice it. But friends, that would be a hard loss because the book of Esther has valuable lessons for us to learn. You see, in many other books of the Bible, you see God working and acting and moving... ...and it's often done with dramatic display... Come fall of next year, we're going, or later this year, we're going to look at Exodus. And it's, it's dramatic display after dramatic display. And God is all over that book. And it's very obvious what he's doing. In these moments, divine intervention will come in the form of miracles where the spectacular leaves no room for debate. No other explanation except God is here. But is the spectacular the only way That God moves? Is that how God works? Does He only intervene at the last moment when it's absolutely critical for Him to get involved? Or is God also in the details? Is God working like uh, an operating system in the background on a computer? You know, the operating system, it's the, it's the thing we hardly ever think about. And, and in fact, it's probably one of the most important things happening on your computer. It manages the computer's memory and processes as well as all of its software and hardware. And it allows the user, like that's us who don't know computer language, to interface with it. Without an operating system, a computer would be useless. But how often do we notice the OS? How often do we know what's happening and consider all the processes that are happening and functioning in the background? See, friends, our God is not detached from this world. He is involved intimately. He's always coordinating, always working at every moment and at every level. I think for a lot of Christians, we might assume God's working at the biggest level. He's making sure that the the biggest movements happen. But, friends, God is at work in the details. Now sometimes his work is visible. And it is spectacular. And other times it's hidden in plain sight. The book of Esther is important. Because it highlights God's providence through normal actions. Through people in the normal order of life. If you read Esther you'll see there. there's no big miracles that jump off the page. That make the headlines. Just a lot of happenings. Seemingly uh, coincidences where the right thing is happening at the right moment where this person is here just at the right time that determine the course of history. Now to the untrained eye it can just seem like just normal coincidence and happenstance. But to those who have learned to look for providence you will see the hand of the Lord working hidden in plain sight as it were. The Puritan minister John Flavel said, He who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. He who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. And here's what he means. If you're looking for God's work in your life, meaning if you're paying attention, if you will think and consider and thoughtfully trace out the details of your life and reflect on it, you will begin to be surprised By just how much you see, by just how much the course and direction of your life has not been happenstance, has not been chance or fate, but has been directed by the Lord. And that's our goal this morning, to trace the providence of God in Esther chapter 2, to see his hand moving and working, hidden in plain sight. Our text will break down into three movements. The first in verses 1 to 4, we'll see a search for a queen. Verses 1 to 4, we'll see the search for a queen. And second, in verses 5 to 11, we will see um, two Jews who are living their life caught between two worlds. We'll see life between two worlds. And finally, in verses 12 to 18, we'll see the details begin to fall into place. We'll see details that begin to fall into place. So as we walk through the storyline... Not only are we going to unpack what's happening, kind of the the flow of the narrative so that we understand the story, but we are going to trace the providence of God who is working out every detail towards his good and purposeful ends. So let's begin together in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, chapter 2 opens with this phrase, after these things. Now, in chapter 1, we learn that Queen Vashti refused to be objectified at a party at the drunken whim of her husband. And we're told that this happened during the third year of his reign. Now, when we skip ahead later into the verses, we're going to find out that Esther becomes queen during the seventh year of his reign. So, if we do math... Seven minus three is what? Two. Okay, we got to work on some math over there. It's four. Four years have passed. So a few years have passed between the events of chapter one and chapter two. Now, if we're a student of history, we know that Ahasuerus, he's also known as Xerxes. That's his Greek name. And he fought a, 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 a very famous war against the Greeks called the Greco-Persian War. And if you want to know more about that, you can see our resident historian, Sam, back there. He'll tell you all about it. In fact, last week, uh, chapter 1 details a six-month-long party that was done to both show off his power and glory but it was also um, like propaganda to try to uh, to to get people to to back his war to give money to the war and to support him and to join him it was to gain support for his military ambitions and the historian um, Herodotus describes what happens in that war and at first, it looks like Ahasuerus is winning, he's, he's pushing, uh, he's going far into Greek territory, but then there's a turn, and he loses. And he returns back to Susa, defeated by the Greeks, and now we find that he's despairing about this hasty decision to depose Queen Vashti. Verse 1 tells us, his anger had abated, it had receded, and he remembered Vashti. In this context, remembrance is really synonymous with regret. He had regretted the decision that he made. He missed his wife. He missed his, her companionship. He missed her and he wanted her back. But because he had, um, made his, uh, he had written her deposition among the law of the Persians and the Medes, the decision was irreversible. We find that out in chapter 1, that when you write it into law, not even the king can reverse that decision. See, if he had just sent her away and told her, uh, uh, get out of here, go back to your room, he could have called her back, but he decided to write it into law. And because he made it a matter of law, there was nothing he could do to reverse it. So as it turns out, King Ahasuerus isn't as powerful and limitless as he once thought. Now, he has an opportunity here. He could do some self-reflection. He could consider man, things go bad when I get angry and I just start writing laws, you know? He could have looked back and go, what, what happens when I get angry like that? What happens when I go off and fight wars? Like, what led to this moment? He could have used this as an opportunity for reflection on what goes wrong in his lust for power and pleasure and how it leads to regrettable decisions. But instead... He seeks counsel from the same idiots who gave him that bad advice back in chapter 1. So he calls him in. Verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Agai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So now, uh, this method for finding a wife is outrageous, even by Persian pagan standards. And I'm telling you that because this was just not the normal way that it went. Typically, when you're a king in, this, in the ancient world, um, wives were carefully chosen from among noble families. Often, marriages would be strategic and they would be beneficial for both political and military purposes. Perhaps there was this other powerful family, and so there would be this, this marriage to merge the families together. But not here. Everything about this search for a queen is despicable. It's extravagant in the worst kind of way. And it's meant to dull the pain that King Ahasuerus feels. This is making a bad decision, you know, deposing his wife. But instead of learning from it, he's masking the pain with indulgence. Now his young men know who, know him. They know him well and they know this is a way to help the king go past his. But instead of being good friends and saying hard things to him, they play to his weaker side. And in this moment, he's depressed, he's despondent, he's discouraged. But instead of asking good, heart-level questions to understand how his anger and pride led to this string of bad decisions, what does he do? He doubles down on his pride and foolishness. Now, none of us have the kind of resources to go toe-to-toe with Ahasuerus on his indulgence. But we all know how to mask bad decisions with indulgence. We all know how to, uh, to cover up our pain. We know how to escape instead of dealing with our sin. So maybe we go shopping and we look to go find new things that will make us feel better. Maybe we get a case of beer and binge watch Netflix. Maybe we distract ourselves with home projects never stopping so we don't have to think. Maybe we bury ourselves in our work so that before long enough time has passed and we've simply just moved on. The methods and scales are different, but the results are the same. Instead of dealing with our character, instead of dealing with the problem of the heart, we find ways to numb We find ways to distract and we find ways to pretend like there isn't a problem. Now at this point in the story, we should hate the king's sin. What he's doing is sinful. And I'm going to unpack that more here in a minute. We should see it and we should call it what it is. His actions are sinful. They are morally reprehensible. At the same time, We shouldn't just hate his sin, we should hate ours as well. We should ask, in what ways do I act like him? Maybe not the same scale, but there are ways that we all numb, distract, and pretend like we aren't sinful. We need to ask, have I participated in sexual indulgence and lust that objectifies women and men? Have I abused power over people So that they serve my interests regardless of how it affects them. Have I masked my character flaws or numbed my heart to avoid having to take responsibility and repent for my sin? See, the temptation here is to just hate the king's sin and not look at ours. Let's not make that mistake. Or we'll end up making a same kind of bad string of foolish and prideful sins. Now let's keep moving in the story because this king's search for a queen has a real impact on real people. So the young men say, let's go search out all the provinces. You remember in chapter one we find out there's 127 different provinces in the kingdom and empire of Persia. And they say, let's gather women from all of them, beautiful versions taken into the king's harem. And pretty soon when we, when we get them all gathered, we'll pretty them up, we'll take them to the spa, and we'll get them ready so that you can have your fill. You can take your time, night after night, indulging in sensuality until you've decided which girl you want to make queen. Now, notice, at the whim of a king and his council, hundreds, if not thousands, of families had their lives changed. Here's what would happen if you were taken into the king's harem. First of all, You would never see your family again. Once you were taken into the king's harem, you were a a part of that for the rest of your life. Even if the king didn't choose you, you would never. It's not like, oh, he didn't choose you. I'm sorry. You didn't make it. Go back to your family, your life. No, no. You were taken forever. And then you were taken into the king's palace. You'd be prettied up. You'd be well fed. And you would go through a regimen of perfumes and cosmetics just to get ready for one night ...with the king. And after that night... ...doing whatever the king wanted... ...you would be sent back to the harem... ...to live the rest of your life... ...yes in luxury... ...but in desolate seclusion... ...waiting to be called on again. Sometimes you'd be called on again... ...sometimes you wouldn't. You could not leave the harem... ...you couldn't return to your family... ...you couldn't marry... ...you couldn't start a new life. Whatever dreams and plans she had didn't matter. The relationships and hopes of the families of these young women didn't matter. They would never see their daughter again. For what it's worth, these decisions didn't just affect the women. Each year, history tells us that over 500 men were chosen to serve as eunuchs. You think about it, someone's got to take care of these women, and the king didn't want regular men taking care of them, so he would take men, castrate them, And have them serve to keep this machine running. See, at every level, this is an abuse of power on a catastrophic scale. This is the dark world where Esther and Mordecai find themselves. And in all of this, God seems absent, doesn't he? Like, What is he doing? Why isn't he intervening? And yet, as you read the story, you could read this. You could sit down this week and read Esther in about 30 minutes minutes. And if you do, you'll get the whole picture. And we have the advantage from our point in history, we can see thousands of years for history. And we know that this search for a queen becomes pivotal for the preservation of God's people later in the story. We know that eventually this same culture That King Ahasuerus has cultivated and established this lust for power, this this lust for indulgence actually leads to his demise. He creates a culture of of power and lust that leads to an assassination, a successful assassination attempt on his life. In just a few years, he's going to die. Right now, it seems as though God is absent, but yet, friends, he is at work in. The details. He is working in the background through, to this, through decisions of moral agents to bring it about that his sovereign purposes prevail. Now at this point, it would be helpful that we get on the same page on what we're talking about when we use words like sovereignty and providence. I think John Piper is really helpful. Here's how he defines them. He says, God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. But notice that nothing in that definition of sovereignty refers to God's wisdom or his plans. It's just the right and the power. You have the right and you have the power to do what you decide to do. So whenever God decides to do a thing, he does it and no one can stop him. That's sovereignty. Providence, however, includes what sovereignty doesn't. Providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. Or you could say, providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty so his sovereignty is the reality that god has the right and the power as the maker creator and sustainer of the earth and all creation to do whatever pleases him that's his sovereignty his providence tells us that he enacts that sovereignty with goodness purpose and wisdom Charles Bridges is also helpful here when it comes to how God works within the created order, particularly in the details. This is what he says. In inert matter, God acts by physical force. So that's just like rocks and trees and rivers and streams. In brute animals, he acts by instinct and appetite. In intelligent beings by motives suited to their faculties and in redeemed people by the influence of You see, in all these different categories, God is moving and working in the details. So is Ahasuerus guilty of indulgence and the abuse of power for how he acted in the book of Esther? Yes. Is it morally reprehensible for him to abduct women to satisfy his lust? Yes. And yet, God is working through his sin to bring about his sovereign God is not absent. He is working in ways that we cannot understand and cannot see in order to bring about his good purposes. In our own limited nature, we just simply lack the ability to unravel the trillions upon trillions of threads of the tapestry of God's providence. But for now, know that God is on the move. He is at work, even in this story, hidden in plain sight in this search for a queen. Now let's turn to look at verse 5 to see life between two worlds. Verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, here we're introduced to Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's living in Susa, the capital, one of the capitals of Persia. Now, it might be helpful to have a little bit of Israelite history so that you uh, understand where we are in the place of God's story, okay? So these are some just uh, uh, pinpoints that if you would get in your mind, you can kind of have Israelite history and know where you are in the Bible. So in 930 B.C., Solomon dies, and when he dies... His sons divide the kingdom. And so Israel gets split into a northern kingdom with ten tribes and, and then to a southern kingdom with Judah and Benjamin. And often that southern kingdom was just called Judah, even though it included uh, Judah and Benjamin. Okay. The, king, the northern kingdom is defeated by Assyria in 721 B.C. Now, the southern kingdom holds out for a little while, and meanwhile, in the world stage, Assyria is conquered by Babylon, okay? So, northern kingdom conquered by Assyria, then the Babylonians come, and they conquer um, Assyria. And then, in 597 BC, the Babylonians come through, and they conquer uh, Jerusalem. And when they do, they capture the king at the time, King Jeconiah, and and in 2 Kings 24, we find out that Thousands of Jews are deported with King Jeconiah, and they go into captivity in Babylon. Again, 2 Kings chapter 24, you can go read about it. Then, 11 years later, just the next chapter over, in 586, Babylon returns, and they destroy Jerusalem. That's when the temple is destroyed. That's when the city uh, walls are are, uh, leveled. They gave them like 11 years to try to do life on their own and they got annoyed with them and they said, no, no, we're just going to level you guys to the ground. And so that's when the final and complete destruction of Jerusalem happens. And again, they deport people out. This was so typical in the ancient world. Often when you conquered a place, you would take the best people, the, you would take the doctors, the lawyers, the smart people, the scientists, and you would, you would bring them into your country so that you could use them to serve and better your culture. And the hope is that eventually, given enough generations, they would intermarry and they would eventually go, Hey, it's pretty nice here. And you would essentially wipe their culture off the face of the earth because they've assimilated. They haven't kept their distinctiveness and they've just become like them. So the hope would be we capture these Jews and in a few years, a few generations, they won't be Jews anymore. They'll be Babylonians just like us. Now, if you fast forward in history, in the years that followed, Babylon is conquered by Persia and under the reign of Darius, and Darius is the father of King Ahasuerus, he defeats the Babylonians and he says, you guys can go home if you want. You guys can go back, you can rebuild uh, Israel, now you're still going to be under our empire, but you can go back home, you can do that. And that's what we find out in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what that whole, those books are about. It's the people returning back to the land after King Darius says that they can go. Now what's the point of all this history? I'm glad you asked. The writer is letting you know that Mordecai's family was among those deported in 597 under the reign of Jeconiah. So when, when Jeconiah was um, defeated and a bunch of people went to Babylon, Mordecai's family, not Mordecai himself, but like his great grandparents were part of that group. And they got deported. That's why He's there. But then, when, they were, when, when, when people were allowed to go back, Mordecai made the decision to stay. Living in Susa under the Persian Empire is all that he knows. It's really all his family has known for the last 120 years. So they were allowed to go back, but they decided to stay if they so chose. Many returned, but some opted to stay. And you could, you could probably consider like, that there are probably pros and cons for both. Staying in Persia with the life you've known, you're already set up, has its pros. But then there's also downsides. You're living amongst a pagan culture. But going to Jerusalem and being part of the team that's rebuilding and the state that a city would be in as it's still rebuilding would also be difficult. And so there's pros and cons to both. And the Bible doesn't say which one is the right decision. Staying in Persia had its benefits as well as its drawbacks. So now we look at verse 7. We find that Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. Now here, we're finally introduced to the book's namesake, Esther. She was an orphan, and her older cousin Mordecai had adopted her and was raising her as his own daughter. We find out she has two names, a Hebrew name, Hadassah, and a Persian name, Esther. And we come to find that this girl is living life between two worlds. On the one hand, she's Jewish, and yet, at the same time, she's also Persian. She would have probably identified as both. It's all she's ever known. And now Esther has decisions to make. And some of those decisions will be entirely outside of her control. And yet through it all, she will do her best to be faithful to the Lord. Now, we find out a significant detail about her, that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So if we were translating that into today's language, it would have said, Esther was smoking hot. That's Esther. She had like a perfect figure, gorgeous face. And you can see where all of this is headed. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. So we find that Esther is taken into custody, chosen because she meets the requirements of the king. Here's what he's looking for. She's got to be young, she's got to be a virgin, and she needs to be beautiful. Verse 9, and the young woman pleased him, that's Haggai, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem, To learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So here's what's going on. Esther gains favor with Haggai who's in charge of the harem. And he rises her to a place of prominence. Puts her at the top of the pecking order. She's well fed and she's even given a crew, seven women, to help her get her ready for her night with the king. We're also told that she hid her Jewish identity at the advice and direction of Mordecai. And we're not told why. We're not told why he told her to do that, just that he did. And we find out that Mordecai would keep an eye on her as best as he could. Make no mistake about it. This is not a Cinderella story. There have been some who tried to paint it this way to kind of uh, take the edge off of it, but that's not what this is. This is not a rags to riches story. This is not a love story between Esther and King Ahasuerus. This is simply life in the dark world of this empire. Notice, this isn't the life she's chosen. She didn't volunteer for this. It's the life that's chosen her. It's an empire on the move at the whim of an evil dictator. In this world personal choice and freedom does not exist. It's hard for us to even consider what that would have been like. Now, it's important at this point to understand the difference between descriptive texts and prescriptive texts. If you're taking notes, write those two words down, descriptive and prescriptive. I'm going to unpack what those means. You know, we just finished a series in Romans 8. Every verse in Romans 8 is prescriptive. It's a prescription for how to live life. It is telling you what truth to believe, what goodness to shape your morality, and beauties to stir your affection for God. You can read Romans 8 and just receive all of it as instructions for your life. It is prescribing, telling you how to live a life that glorifies and honors God. But when we come to history, we have to be really careful not to manipulate the text to make it say things it's not saying, or to go, oh, this text is condemning this, or this text is uh, approving the actions of these people. Oftentimes, the way history is written, it's just telling us what happened. In other words, it's describing events, telling us how it all went down. And sometimes the text will tell us whether or not the the writer views that action as morally right or morally wrong. And sometimes it's ambiguous. It doesn't tell us whether the actions are morally right or wrong. Sometimes we can um, put our thinking caps on and look at the rest of Scripture, and we can discern the morality of actions because we have other texts that tell us about those actions. So, for instance, it is okay for us to look at the King's Edict we can and, and, and say that his search for a queen is morally reprehensible. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the objectification of women, that sex slavery is categorically wrong. So because of that, we can look at his actions and say they are wrong. But when it comes to the actions of Mordecai and Esther, it's just not that simple. It's not that black and white. In these verses, much of what follows, the text is descriptive not prescriptive. In other words, it doesn't give us a direct answer to the rightness or wrongness of the decisions that they make. In other words, this is not giving you a play-by-play for how to make decisions when, uh, so that you live life in the world but not of the world. The Bible gives us answers to that question. It's just not here. Now, why am I saying all that? Because I don't want us to, to look at this and then fall into two camps— condemning everything they're doing, or saying, well, this is what you're supposed to do when you come to hard and difficult moral decisions as you live life in a pagan world. In this chapter, we see Esther and Mordecai facing very difficult decisions. So for instance, I've tried to unpack some of those decisions they're making. For example, should Mordecai have left Susa with Esther years ago when the Jews were allowed to return? Should he have packed his bags and left years ago? Or should Mordecai have taken, like, should he have taken this opportunity to go back to Israel? Or did he stay because it was easier? Did he, did he stay because he had grown comfortable with the Persian lifestyle? Should Mordecai have escaped Susa to get as far away from the king when the edict went out that he was looking for young, beautiful virgins? Should he have said, okay, that's enough. I tried to live here for a while, but now I've got to get as far away as possible to protect Esther. Should he he have hidden her or tried to escape her being taken into the king's harem? Another question. Did Mordecai sin when he directed Esther not to reveal her Jewish identity? Was he being shrewd and wise or was he being sinful? Did she sin by following his direction? Because she has some responsibility in how she decides to deliver life. Should Esther have refused to be taken into the king's harem? Should she have said over my dead body? Should she have told the king no and faced whatever consequences in order to avoid having to sleep with a pagan queen? We could ask, did Esther do everything in her power to maintain fidelity to Jewish law and custom? Could she have done more? Or did she see this as an opportunity to gain a higher station in life? Or was she simply making Lemonade out of the lemons she had been given? Did Esther and Mordecai become compromised? Did they assimilate into pagan Persian culture, losing their Jewish distinctiveness? Or were they simply surviving in a difficult world where they're forced to do whatever it takes to survive? Friends, we are not the judge and jury on the morally difficult decisions they had to make. But here's what I can tell you they did face real decisions. And their decisions mattered. Like what they decided to do had impact. Just like us. We face morally difficult decisions all the time. And it actually matters what we decide. Because our decisions lead to other decisions and other circumstances because they have consequences. One decision impacts the other decisions that we'll have to make. Though we face moral decisions and difficult decisions, the reality is... There is no moral ambiguity with God. I want to make that distinction clear. Though at times it's hard for us to discern whether something is morally right or wrong, God God sees everything clearly. Our problem is, is that we have limited perspectives and we have hearts with motives that are often tainted by sin. And so it can make it very difficult for us to discern right from wrong. Ultimately, Mordecai and Esther had to make their decisions, and they will stand before God for how they made those decisions. Our job is not to make moral judgments on them, but to come to grips with the reality that we too face morally difficult decisions when it comes to living in a sin-soaked world. You and I face difficult and consequential decisions every single day. So the purpose of this chapter is not to stand in judgment over them, but in other words, to look at it like a case study and, and and And, to stir up good questions like I tried to do earlier for us to consider as it, when we come to those kinds of to the hard work of moral ethics, the goal of Esther of this book is not to make Esther or Mordecai into these role models. In fact, we often do that in the Old Testament. we look at these people as. As heroes, as the, and then we, 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 we say everything they do is, is morally right. But they're humans just like us, and they make mistakes. Karen Jobs is helpful here. She writes this. The author's silence makes it virtually impossible to use Esther's behavior as a moral role model. How would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Use your body to advantage to advance in God's kingdom. The ends justify the means. The exemplary approach fails here because the author does not intend to hold up Esther as a moral example to be followed. Esther may well have been a virtuous woman, obedient to God's law. But even if she was, the author chose, chooses to veil her virtue in a morally ambiguous and complex situation. It does not allow us to come to simple answers when we consider Esther's life in light of Scripture. Finally, she says, the author is skillfully describing a morally ambiguous and complex situation because that is the way real life often is in this fallen world. Friends, our tendency is to turn the Old Testament stories into Aesop's fables. To look at these people and go, "What's what's the lesson, the thing I'm supposed to do? And we turn these characters into heroes and assume they always make the right decision. But in fact, they often make the wrong decision. But here's where I want us to be encouraged this morning. Regardless of whether or not Esther and Mordecai made all the right decisions each time, or if their motives were pure, God is still at work. Taking the imperfection and even the morally questionable actions to fulfill his sovereign purposes so what are we supposed to do we are supposed to wrestle with these decisions we are supposed to to act I think Esther is a great case study that could stir up really powerful questions I think we're meant in community to to, to have these kinds of discussions and to tease out the questions so that we grow in our desire and ability to faithfully live life in a fallen world and just like Esther there are often no easy and pat answers So what do you do? Well, you saturate yourself with scripture so that you have a good theological grid and foundation to process life. Surround yourself with good Christian community where you can have these kinds of conversations and discussions. And you can process the decisions you're making with other people. And at the end of the day, when it comes time to make a decision, make the decision and trust in the Lord. Sometimes you'll make the right decisions and sometimes you won't. But either way, God's purposeful sovereignty ensures that his purposes prevail. Now, quickly, let's look at the last few verses to see how these details begin to fall into place. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch. Who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Again, here's how this whole thing worked. The girls were taken into custody and they would undergo an elaborate makeover. They would be well fed. Why? Because people often in the ancient world were undernourished. Then they would receive six months of skin treatments with oil of myrrh, six months of spices and ointments, basically to wipe away any traces that they were ever poor and impoverished living. The, these treatments would ensure that their skin was fit for a king, so that in every way they were a delight to his senses. And then they would get their night with the queen, with, with the king, and most often, as is probably the case, they would never return again, never be called on again. To live a life of opulent obscurity. Think about that. A year's worth of spa treatments to then just be discarded for the rest of her unimportant life. They were essentially just treated as discards. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai. Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, And made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. And it was called Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now we start to see all these details fall in place. Esther won grace and favor with the king and he decided to make her queen. He set the crown on her head and he made it official with a feast In his delight, he even reduces taxes throughout the kingdom. Now, over and over, you notice the author tells us that Esther was gaining favor. She was gaining favor, gaining favor. She was recognized by the officials who first sought out for the beautiful girls throughout the kingdom. She gained favor with the keeper of the harem. She gained favor with everyone who saw her. And when it mattered most, she gained favor with the king. Notice, we're never told what she did to gain favor, just that she did. And did you notice as we've worked our way through this chapter that almost every single verse is written in the passive voice? Did you notice that? I encourage you, go back later today and look and see how many times the passive voice comes up. Now, if you're not a grammar nerd, you might be asking, well, what's the passive voice? Well, the difference between the passive voice and the active voice is this. When a sentence is written in the active voice, the subject of the sentence is the one doing the action. It's the, it, it, it really drives the narrative forward. The active voice, in other words, highlights the person doing the action. But in the passive voice, the subject is acted upon, or they're the ones affected by the action. Typically, if you're writing a good short story, you want to use the active voice because it, it really drives the narrative Forward, And your good literature teachers will teach you how to change the passive voice into the active voice. Because it, it really will drive the story forward. And you can use a, a, a whole host and range of better, more descriptive verbs. So it begs the question, why has the author chosen to write in the passive voice? Well, this is a technique often employed by biblical writers to stress the hand Of God, moving the details and the events towards His wise and purposeful sovereignty. We even have a term for it. It's called the divine passive. That's what's going on in Esther. Not just this chapter, but if you read the whole book, you'll see the passive voice coming up over and over and over again. It's like the author, without ever mentioning God's name, is showing you who is really directing the course of the events. It's a literary strategy used by the author to invite us to consider God's providence in the details. It's an invitation to see, look how God moves, not just in big ways, but also in the details, in the decisions of people's lives. See, at the end of the day, what is Esther all about? Esther is a story of two competing empires. And it's a story about how God takes down one of the most prominent and powerful empires, armed with nothing but an old man, a young girl, without his name ever coming up in the conversation. In this book, there's no miracle, there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no prophet sent. There's literally no mention of God at all. And he seems to be completely absent, he's totally silent. But by the time we come to the end of the book, we're going to see, and you can start to see the details falling into place now, that a whole string of coincidences happened. That had they not happened, the Jews would be wiped out. We're going to find out that there's an edict that's going to go out to go throughout all of the provinces, which means the whole, everywhere where Jews live, to wipe them out systematically. And if that hadn't happened, all the Jews would be wiped out. And so let me trace some of these details in these seemingly coincidences that have happened. So far, we find out that if the king hadn't been prideful to sh- to throw an elaborate party, he wouldn't have gotten drunk. And if he wouldn't have gotten drunk, he wouldn't have called for Vashti. Without her saying no, she would not have been deposed. Without her vacancy, there would be no search for her replacement. Without Mordecai deciding to stay put in Persia, Esther might not have been chosen. Without Esther being beautiful, she definitely wouldn't have been chosen. If Esther hadn't found favor in the harem, she wouldn't have risen to prominence to get a knight with the king. In other words, another girl might have been chosen before her. Without finding favor and grace from the king, she would never have become the queen. And this is just the first set of circumstances that we're going to see so many more play out over the course of this book. And the complexity of circumstances will lead us to the conclusion to deny that this was just happenstance or fate. This is the purposeful, sovereign hand of God working in and through all of these many details to bring about the preservation of his people, the Jews, which would ultimately lead to Jesus. See, if the Jews are wiped out, Jesus can't be born. God is at work in the details, and you can trust Him with the details of your life. Now, as we close, in a very dark chapter like chapter two, is there any hope? Is there any spark of hope for us? And the answer is yes. It's just a glimmer, but it's there. You see, years earlier, Israel had given themselves to idolatry. It's actually why they were in captivity in the first place. And you can read about how they had given themselves to idol worship. And in fact, at the height of it, they even sacrificed their own children to the pagan god Molech. And God had sent the prophet Ezekiel to warn Israel of judgment if they would not repent. And of course, they did not listen. And in Ezekiel thirty three twenty eight, 28, God said, I will make the land a desolation and a waste. So God told them what was going to happen had they, if they did not repent. And God was true to his word. Eventually, judgment came. The temple was destroyed. The city walls were crumbled. The people were carried away in exile. And notice, the promised land became a desert. It became a desolate place. But as is often the case, with words of judgment also come words of promise and restoration. Look at Isaiah 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Listen. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. These verses are picturing a barren, desolate place full of thorny, hard, kind of uh, uninhabitable plants. See, their idolatry had turned the promised land into a desert But God promised that one day his grace would bring restoration and the thorns would be replaced by the cypress and the prickly briars would one day give way to the blooming myrtle. So where's the hope? Do you know what Esther's Hebrew name Hadassah means? Esther's name Hadassah is translated as myrtle. Her name is giving us hope. It's a small glimmer of hope in the darkness of chapter 2 in the midst of darkness, in the midst of this barren, desolate place where it seems that God is absent, God's myrtle tree is getting ready to blossom. And our sin, we make deserts, but by his grace, God makes deserts bloom. So when your sin has made deserts, repent and turn from your sin. Trust in the God of grace to make deserts bloom again and rest in his good providence that God will work out all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray.